This is the Power Slam podcast being recorded on April 28, 2018. My name is Brendan Dennis, here to discuss and review the greatest Royal Rumble that occurred in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia on Friday, April 27th. As those of you that were in the know and actually watched the event know, the card of the greatest Royal Rumble was probably comparable to WrestleMania, if not on paper, potentially even better. I, I think, obviously, the, the negatives being that there were no women's matches on the card. I'm a guy who watches a lot of New Japan, so it's debatable whether or not that's a negative. Um, I do enjoy the ladies, however, that I do think really bring it, such as Asuka, Charlotte, Becky Lynch, Alexa Bliss, not so much her in-ring work, but more of her work on the mic and her personality. I think she does very well. Rousey, obviously, was good in her debut. So, and Bailey and um, Banks. So, that could have been better if, if they had a pretty nice ladies match on there, but there was really no way that they were going to be able to do it. The last time that they put on an Arabic show that involved women, they had to dress up essentially in full body suits. And I'm not even sure that was in Saudi Arabia. I'm not sure which country uh, they put that show on in, but there was no way that they were going to have a lot of women on the card having to do that. That, if you'll remember correctly, I believe was a one-on-one -on -one match between Sasha Banks and Alexa Bliss. And again, they were both pretty heavily covered up. So that was not in the cards for this card, but a stacked card nonetheless. Before I get into the greatest Royal Rumble, breaking down the matches individually, I do want to talk about some hot topics. One of them actually kind of stemmed from the greatest Royal Rumble, but I don't want to go into it while I'm in the middle of the review because it'll take away from what I'm talking about otherwise. And that's specific to New Japan and Chris Jericho's involvement in New Japan going forward. I haven't talked about this. I haven't really addressed New Japan news in a couple of weeks, so I want to take a time out here to talk about that. Jericho gave a local TV interview, and I can't remember what local state. It was literally an American local television station, and I would imagine he gave it maybe in the context of where he was with Fozzie, although I think they've done touring. Um, so again, I'm not sure what the context was in which he did the was at the location to do the interview, but he did. And in the interview, he heavily alluded to the idea that he was supposed to continue to work with New Japan after Wrestle Kingdom 12, but it never came to fruition, which essentially everybody already knows, but he basically gave the reason and the indication for why it never worked, which, according to the interview, appeared to be that Gato and Jado didn't want to pay him, or New Japan just in general, didn't want to pay him what he thought he was worth. There was a disconnect on his deal post-Wrestle Kingdom. Because Jericho is, you know, if he's going to wrestle at this point, I think he's looking to make a good chunk of coin wrestling. Because otherwise he's focused on Fozzie, he's made enough money wrestling. If you're not going to pay him or give him a, an interesting program, then he's probably not going to be all that involved. And Jericho was supposed to, as everybody knows, have faced um, Naito, Tetsuya Naito, in a program shortly after Wrestle Kingdom took place. So Jericho does Wrestle Kingdom, does New Year's Dash the next night to set up the program with Naito, but then nothing ever comes to fruition. So he must have just been signed for Wrestle Kingdom and New Year's Dash 
Jericho, in the local interview, said something to the effect of, I brought in millions of dollars for New Japan with this match, and sometimes things just don't work out, or something along those lines. I mean, again, it wasn't picture perfect, but there was an extremely heavy and strong allusion to the idea that Chris Jericho no longer was doing work with New Japan because of a difference in money. And Again, if that's the tack that Jericho wants to take, I don't think a lot of people are going to necessarily fault him for it because he has been wrestling a long time. He's basically entitled to that if that's what he wants to do, or at least entitled to make his own decision on that. I bring it up now because I did read one individual's preview of New Japan's event this weekend. I can't even pronounce it. It's actually an event. It's not like Dominion or Sakura Genesis, or it has already happened. Dominion's going to happen shortly. Um... But it's another event altogether that New Japan is running this weekend at which the main event is going to be Minoru Suzuki versus Tetsuya Naito for the Intercontinental Championship, which they basically have been building up to over the last couple of months. So the individual previewing the event basically said this would be a great time for Chris Jericho to come in whether or not Naito wins the belt and do another attack or post-match promo on him to set something up for Dominion. And that probably would be the case if Jericho was really going to do this. But again, based upon that local television interview, at least the transcript that I read, I think it's extremely unlikely. I think that Jericho's, you know, does he like to play people on things? Sure. And he has been, he said, I'm done with New Japan. I'm not going to do New Japan. And usually if he does that, you know, that is maybe an indication that he's trying to play everybody. But then when he provided in this interview, basically the reason being I, you know, got millions of eyeballs or made millions of dollars for the promotion through Wrestle Kingdom 12 and it's not working out, you know, again, alluding to the idea that there's a financial disconnect, I, I would doubt that he would throw that out there without there being some truth to it because I'm sure that New Japan even if he's doing that as a work that's not something that's probably going to thrill them this idea being thrown around that they're not paying their talent what they're worth if you're a company you don't really want that to be out in in the public and be the narrative anyway and you know if it's a work you're certainly I I wouldn't think going to ask your talent to put that out again in in the public purview so I think it's unlikely that Jericho is going to do it. I think that Jericho legitimately is done with New Japan for, again, for the time being, unless they do come to the table and renegotiate. And then the question becomes, where is Chris Jericho going to be then with WWE? And I think that's a great question. I don't know the answer to that either. I don't think that he is jonesing to do another run with WWE, basically unless he's probably promised a title program. And when I say a title program, I'm talking about probably a world title program. So either the WWE Championship on SmackDown or the Universal Championship on Raw. Again, unless he's really promised to be in one of those programs, I don't see him doing it. Because the incentive for Jericho just isn't there. I mean, would he get some money? Sure, he would get some money. He's you know, getting money through his band and other means. He, d- he doesn't necessarily need it at this point in his career. He's made a lot of money over the years. I think he mostly wants to do what he feels as though is interesting. And if there's, again, a program that comes around that interests him, I think he's likely to participate in that. If, if that doesn't take place, you're probably not going to see him back in a wrestling ring. 
So I know that was a little bit longer than I wanted it to be, but that's my blurb about Chris Jericho and New Japan. One other topic that I addressed in the prior podcast that is New Japan-centric, Bone Soldier's return. Apparently Bone Soldier is not going to be the same old Bone Soldier. It's going to be a different wrestler, Taiji Ishimori, who is obviously clearly younger than the old Bone Soldier, um, and is relatively well-known from what I understand. I've heard Ishimori's name. I, I don't recall specifically having watched him wrestle, but from the little that I've read about the situation, the consensus seems to be relatively positive in that, okay, let's get Bone Soldier the heck out of here and get somebody who's young and fresh and can actually, you know, wrestle um, into the scene. So that appears to be a positive shift in the right direction. Again, in the prior podcast, I already speculated as to what the return of Bone Soldier would mean for the Bullet Club. That doesn't really change just because it's a different wrestler under the mask. You have to remember Bone Soldier is a masked wrestler. So assuming that the fact that the person under the mask isn't changing the character in any discernible way, then my analysis of what Bone Soldier being back in New Japan and with the Bullet Club means shouldn't be any different. So back to the Greatest Royal Rumble. I thought it was a pretty average pay-per-view. I thought that the Rumble itself was a bit of a slog, which shouldn't be all that shocking, considering you've got 50 people in it. You know, 30 people is a good number for a Rumble. Having to expand it to 50 becomes kind of painful. I'm hoping that Vince doesn't all of a sudden end up with the idea that the actual Royal Rumble should now be 50 men. Because, again, I think it takes away from the general quality of the match. And not only that, but you had Daniel Bryan in there. Daniel Bryan set the record for time in a Royal Rumble, which, again, easy to do when you've got 20 more people in the Rumble. Um, I believe it was about an hour and 12 minutes, the prior record having been held, I think, by, they said Ray Mysterio, like an hour and three minutes or something like that. So he really crushed it. Um, Bryan, if you watch the match, I'll talk about the Rumble match first, and then we'll get to the other matches. If you watch the match, Brian's chest, I think, was described by Corey Graves, and he was pretty accurate with this. It looked like hamburger meat. It was either Graves or Saxton. Somebody said that, and it's true. I mean, his chest and his bicep, I think it was right bicep, were just redder than you could imagine. It looked, they were all bruised up. It looked bad. Um, and I don't even know what he did to take that bump. I don't know if that was against the stairs or the steps or somebody chopping him or, or what it was that caused it to look like that but it was particularly bad he was the very first one in i thought just because it was because jericho was going to be there that jericho was going to be the first one in and then as you got to about 45 and he still hadn't been announced i shifted my opinion to he's probably going to be the last one in which is what he was and the reason i thought he was going to be first is because he's generally known as the royal rumble iron man he spent more time in Royal Rumbles than any other competitor. And I guess he padded that a little bit with this Rumble, although he wasn't in there for very long. He padded it, again, just a very little bit. I want to say he was probably only in this Rumble for about five minutes. But you had Jericho, uh, you had Dan O'Brien, you had Shane McMahon, you had Braun Strowman, who was the eventual winner. You had Bobby Lashley, you had Kevin Owens. I, I also noticed that Sami Zayn wasn't in it. And I believe that Sami Zayn is Syrian-Canadian. So, but I believe he's Syrian heritage. And so I don't know if that played into why he wasn't there in Saudi Arabia. But, of course, he was not in a singles match or any other non-Rumble match. 
So I thought he was going to be slated for the Rumble. I can't recall if he was on advertising or not, but he was not in the match at all. And so I don't know if any listeners out there have any information, but yeah, I'm not privy specifically as to why he was not there, but he was not. Rey Mysterio was in the match. Big Cass came in as the second-to-last entrant, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Dolph Ziggler was number two in with Ryan. Still seems to have no direction. So let's get into this. Um, let's talk about Ziggler for a hot minute, and I don't want to put everybody to sleep here right off the bat, but I, I, what is Dolph Ziggler's ultimate direction here? I don't know the answer to that question. I really don't. Um, he was in the Rumble at number two, so he got to go one-on-one with Daniel Bryan a little bit, which could be a preview of what the two of them are going to do on SmackDown. Or was he moved to Raw? <laughs> now I can't remember. If he's still on SmackDown, I'll go to my Super Sh- Superstar Shake-Up ep- episode and listen to that and figure it out, but... If he's still on SmackDown, then it'll be a preview of what's going to happen on SmackDown. If he's not, then it won't, obviously. Um, but they don't know what to do with Dolph Ziggler. Dolph Ziggler's deal's running up. The That whole deal about him having a $1.5 million downside guarantee to a new contract that he signed appears to be total bupkis because he's since come out and said, I have not signed a new contract. That's inaccurate. So I, I don't know. I think that he's his deal's probably going to run out and unless they do pay him some significant cash and maybe they will you know i don't know but maybe they do come at him with some money but unless they come at him with some money i cannot imagine that he's going to want to continue floundering around in wwe which is what he's doing i mean let's face facts he's just kind of there there's no direction in any form or fashion and variation in, as to what he's doing so i hope it works out for him i hope that there's a program that comes around that really just changes the perception as a whole and he really comes into his own once again in WWE but this whole deal as far as I'm concerned with the entrances and you know he literally walks out with no entrance music and then his entrance music turns on mid-ramp it's just it's lame it's not it's not good it's bad stop doing it so hopefully they realize that and they um, change the narrative from that perspective moving on to Big Cass. So Big Cass comes in at number, what, 49. And they're setting Big Cass up for a big program. As a matter of fact, he was the one to eliminate Daniel Bryan from the Rumble. And they wouldn't have had Cass eliminate Daniel Bryan unless they wanted to give him a little bit of a push here. So he was the second-to-last entrant. He was also the second-to-last individual in the Rumble as he was dumped by Braun Strowman. I, I don't really know where they're going to go with Big Cass at this point. It seems somewhat obvious to me that they're going to set up some sort of program with him. But what specifically that's going to be, I'm not entirely aware. Um, I, I'm not a huge fan of having a Big Cass program. I don't particularly like Big Cass. I don't think he has the body type you would necessarily look for in a big-time wrestler. Again, you know, I know that there are people out there who don't really like that excuse, particularly fans of... You know, Chris Hero slash Cassius Ono, but you've got to be in some sort of shape. And now, Big Cass is in some kind of shape. He's not ridiculously out of shape by any stretch of the imagination, but his body type is very strange as it pertains to, I guess, again, just his overall shape. He's kind of got some flab on him. It almost, it almost looks like he's got a little bit of flab that no matter how much he works out and works on it, he just kind of can't get rid of. It's, it's sort of that type of situation or at least that's what i take from it and his personality is all right but he's not sterling on the mic i mean he was carried for quite a while by enzo 
they had, I, I think on the mic actually, a decent enough feud. The problem is that Enzo is complete garbage in the ring, and Big Cass isn't the type of guy that can carry somebody who's complete garbage in the ring, so the feud really didn't work from that perspective. But, I mean, the way I look at Big Cass right now, he's mediocre on the mic, he's mediocre in the ring. He's not absolutely terrible, I don't think, at either, but he's certainly not good at either either. And to set him up as some sort of big challenger on SmackDown by dumping Daniel Bryan to set up a program with him, I think is is just, I mean, unfortunate at best. I think that everybody at this point, now that Daniel Bryan's back, they're looking for matches like Daniel Bryan versus The Miz, who are probably going to have an extended program, you would imagine, here over the next year. At some point, they're going to make us wait for it, it looks like. Um, you know, Daniel Bryan versus AJ Styles, Daniel Bryan versus Shinsuke Nakamura, Daniel Bryan versus Rusev, Daniel Bryan versus maybe even Randy Orton, uh, even Cesaro and Sheamus, if they are to go that route. So there are a lot of great possibilities for Bryan. And Big Cass, I just don't think was on the list, anybody's bucket list, really, of what they wanted to see uh, with a Daniel Bryan program at this point. So we'll watch it. We'll see what happens. And I am certainly kind of hoping at this point for the best with it. Then there's Strowman. Strowman wins. He should have won. He's the guy with all the momentum, you know, at, the, at his back at this point. The question is, what did they do going forward? I think a lot of people assumed that, apparently wrongly, that Brock Lesnar and Roman Reigns was going to result in a Reigns win and the title, but it did not. So now we have Universal Champion Brock Lesnar still going forward. Does Strowman get into a program with Lesnar? I, I wouldn't imagine so. You've got to imagine at this point that Reigns is going to be the guy to beat Lesnar, right? I mean, they can't have Reigns go up against Lesnar repeatedly, lose repeatedly, and then have Strowman beat Lesnar. I mean, at that point, Reigns' credibility with the fans would essentially be shot. So, to me, there's basically no way they're going that route. The only route that I could foresee them taking would be having Reigns beat Lesnar at this point, potentially at SummerSlam, and then start working a Reigns-Strowman program shortly after that. The problem is, everybody kind of knows that Strowman should be in the Universal title picture right now, so until this Reigns-Lesnar feud is over, which at this point it really should be over, because Reigns has lost to him so repeatedly that how, how can you realistically still have Reigns in the Universal title picture at all? But in any event, until this Universal title switches over to Reigns, Strowman's just sort of going to be languishing in the no-man's land that is the mid-card. And now in Raw, you've got a whole bunch of guys that are sort of unfortunate mid-carders, for lack of a better term. I mean, who did you have go over to Raw from SmackDown? I mean, you had Rude, you had Mahal, you had, I believe, Ziggler, if I remember correctly. As I stated earlier in the show, I'm not don't quite remember whether Ziggler moved over to Raw, but I think that he did. And you've got Kevin and Sammy over there. Um, and there's at least one other mid-carder male who I can't recall right off the top of my head who moved over. So you've got a very stacked mid-card of just, but not particularly great guys to wrestle except for KO and Sammy and probably Rude. But Mahal and Ziggler, I don't think you can really say that about at this point. And whomever, whomever this other one that I can't think of I would say the same thing, although, again, I can't recall specifically who it is that I've got in mind. Um, maybe Chad Gable, who is a good enough wrestler, but just isn't really big enough to realistically challenge Strowman. So, uh, you know, 
Strowman is like kind of the WWE equivalent of Tomohiro Ishii from New Japan. I mean, he needs kind of other hosses to wrestle. Now with Ishii, I guess he's not exactly the equivalent, because with Ishii he can wrestle guys of other styles because he's kind of shorter in stature. Strowman is so huge and so big that he can't really go against Bobby Roode, for instance. Or if he does, at this point, the fans are kind of buying it as unrealistic because Strowman could eat two Bobby Roods for breakfast. So you put him over as such a monster and somebody of such a substantial size that it's difficult to have him wrestle these smaller guys. And even Lesnar and Reigns aren't as large as Strowman. Strowman is the largest guy. So it's an entirely new dynamic. But he wins. He got the really cool uh, green belt, which I thought was kind of neat. And the huge trophy. Um, you know, if there was an actual physical WWE Hall of Fame, you would imagine that those could be items eventually placed in there one day. But I, I hope that he does something kind of cool with that swag and, you know, frames it, puts it up in his place, you know, later down the line gives it to his family. Because I think that's that's kind of neat that he was able to get those two items. I think they're pretty cool. Um, so good luck to Braun Strowman. Hopefully he gets, I'm sure he's going to get the push. It's just a matter of they're sort of biding their time. But... You know, why? I guess they kind of freaked out in their boots at WrestleMania, signed Lesnar to, again, some sort of deal that nobody really knows the details of at this point. And now that they've got him on that deal, I almost think that they feel the need to continue him. Or maybe he told them, hey, if I'm going to stick around, I'd better still be Universal Champion. And it's not to the point where they're going to drop it. So uh, we will see when that takes place. Moving on to the rest of the card, um, you know, I'm trying to think of matches that are worth talking about. There was Jeff Hardy and Jinder Mahal, which was not good. I actually watched, I, I didn't watch the match, admittedly. I heard about it, but I also heard about and saw a swanton bomb off the top rope by Hardy that literally completely missed everything, including Jinder Mahal. And Mahal, who was probably, he was getting up from the ground as Hardy's coming up down with the Swanton Bomb, but he just like totally missed. And it wasn't really all that close. And then Jinder pretended to take it and just sort of flopped, even though it was very clear. I mean, it was evidently clear that the bomb didn't hit. So that was pretty hilarious. Um, but any, in any event, Jeff had Hardy retained in that match, which told you immediately that either... Seth Rollins or Finn Balor was going to end up winning the Intercontinental title match because you weren't going to have both mid-card belts on the same show. And I suspected that Rollins was going to retain that. Sure enough, he did. In what was a good four-way match with The Miz and Samoa Joe. I really love Joe on SmackDown. I think that they want to... Put, and what I like about Joe moving to SmackDown is the prevailing thought is he is also being billed as a monster and they can't have him on the same show as Strowman, because Strowman will kind of shadow him as being that kind of monster-dominating force. And that's exactly what Joe should be. So I'm glad they're moving him off of Strowman's show onto the other show and are allowing him to kind of take, take shape as that monster. I think it would be really cool to build him up as a challenger to AJ Styles if he continues to keep the belt. And then you can watch uh, some old TNA clips <laughs> of the two of them going at it. But, yeah, they've got a long history, and they, they put out some really, really great matches in the past, and you would imagine that they would be very motivated to do the same in WWE. And i really like the chance to see that. We haven't gotten the chance to see Joe and Styles really in WWE yet to sort of give them that platform uh, as Joe goes for the WWE title would be really, really cool, I think. Again, I, I always laud Joe. I think he's great. He's fantastic on the mic. He 
goes over as a monster in the ring and he's again versatile enough and agile enough even with his kind of stocky stature to be able to hit enziguris to be able to pull off moves that you just wouldn't imagine somebody of his again kind of stockiness would be able to pull off so love watching joe cannot wait to see him and what he does on smackdown live rusev versus the undertaker let's talk about that for a second Rusev buries both, or excuse me, The Undertaker buries both Rusev and Aiden English in the casket at the same time. I thought that was pretty good. They went for longer than I thought they were going to. I'll give them that. It was a nine-minute match. Now, granted, you know, three of the nine minutes was Rusev outside of the ring kind of walking around at times. But Taker did his, you know, usual stuff. He pulled off old school, hit choke slams, hit a tombstone on English. That was nasty. If anybody saw that, I did react to that live because I was watching that match live and saw English's head basically hit the canvas. And it's not like it bounced off the canvas, okay? So it's not like, you know, his head wasn't a basketball and it went like flying in the air or anything like that, but it distinctly hit the mat. And anytime that happens, when you see somebody kind of in the tombstone, because I remember, so Taker's setting it up and he's got English as, you know, you know, kind of wrapped around his torso, upside down. And when that happens, you know, when Okada does it in New Japan or where Taker does it, because he's really the only guy that's even allowed to do it at this point in WWE, I'm always watching the head in conjunction with the person who's giving the Tombstone Piledriver's knees. Because you want to watch them. So you want to watch their knees because it's where their knees hit in relation to where the head is is going to tell you if the head's going to hit the ground or not. If the head's a little bit above the knees, it's not going to hit the ground. If it's kind of at the knees... <laughs> Then it's like, ugh. And I think English's head, if you go back and look at the replay, the bottom of his head is kind of at the bottom of Taker's kneecap, just about. And I was like, yeah, I'm not so sure. This is going to be awfully close in terms of where it hits. And then sure enough, he went down. And you could see kind of the top of the head hit flush. Now, it didn't crink the neck or anything like that, but he's kind of lucky because it was another quarter inch even uh, that could have been pretty hurtful. So English takes this tombstone. It ends up being fine. Uh, they both get rolled into the casket. Game over. Rusev got a lot more offense in than a lot of people thought. He did the accolade on Taker. Um, once he undid the accolade, he started celebrating. Of course, Taker did the sit-up spot right there, which is fine. It's all good fun. Nobody really expected Rusev to win that match, so it's not really going to hurt him. Um, but, you know, another program that I actually love to see now that he's over on SmackDown is Samoa Joe and Rusev. I mean, my gosh. Give Rusev the U.S. title, which you should have done before, um, like him the U.S. title now and then have Rusev and Samoa Joe feud over the U.S. title. I would love to see a couple again just kind of hoss battles between two guys who are not only big and can do big power moves but are also agile enough to hit kicks um, and do some other really really kind of cruiserweight level stuff uh, at their size. So Rusev goes down to Taker um, you know if, if the rumors are to be believed there's an idea here that Undertaker may wrestle another probably four to eight times in 2018. And he did take a couple bumps in this match. You know, I think he's trying out the left hip to see how much physicality it can kind of take to gauge whether or not he's going to be able to keep going here in 2018. Hopefully for those of you that are Big Taker fans, he does. For me, again, you know, it's, I think he's beyond his time. I think that the Undertaker character that I really enjoyed was the Undertaker character from the mid-90s through maybe the beginning of the Attitude Era, and maybe even into the Ministry. Uh, but once he became Biker Taker, 
and then reverted and the, you know him reverting was kind of cool for a throwback for like a couple of years but you know the the character to me just isn't quite the same guy and um you know the the fact that he can't really wrestle at this point takes away from the character significantly for me it doesn't for other people for a lot of people it's the entrance for me it's the ability to get in the ring and perform and that's something that undertaker used to be able to do back in the 90s and Again, that was a long time ago. Let's go to Cena Triple H, which opened the show, and that match was very well placed on the card. How about I put it to you that way? They had that match right off the bat. The crowd was pumped for it. They were excited to see Cena and Triple H out there. Got a really, really big fan reaction and was just generally, I thought, really cool. It's two guys who, again, are past their primes, but unlike Taker, who I just talked about, can still wrestle. And they can both wrestle very well when they're in shape and ready to go. And Triple H, for as little as he wrestles anymore, which he surely shouldn't because he has so many other responsibilities within the company from a business perspective, but he makes sure through diet and exercise, I think it was actually uh, Saxton who may have mentioned this, on the broadcast, he said basically through diet and exercise, Triple H is always ready to go. And he is. He's always in shape and he's always ready to go out and perform. And so when he, you know, he's got something coming up and he's got to make sure that he's, you know, good to do it, he's good to do it. Cena obviously doesn't need, he stays in shape, but he doesn't have to stay in shape simply to perform. He performs on a regular basis, he's always sharp came out was pretty sharp in this match. I really like the finish um, where Cena, if I recall, whipped Triple H into the corner to basically set up a second AA as Triple H's momentum was kind of taking him towards Cena, which made him, made him easier for Cena to scoop. It made the AA actually look a little more fluid. It was well executed by both wrestlers, and we got a quality match with a quality clean finish, and I expected Cena to go over in that match. He did. I mean, Triple H very rarely at this point is going to go over. I mean, it's pretty rare. I know that, you know, a couple of years ago when he won the Royal Rumble to get the belt heading into WrestleMania 32, you know, he went over. But the, the point of him going over was to get Reigns over. So at this point in his career, I think that he only builds himself up to build others up. And I would say the same thing about Cena. For a long time, people would say things not well about Triple H, as well, but more in more recent times about Cena saying that they would bury opponents. You can't build yourself up to eventually put people over unless you yourself have done really well. So unless you've won consistently, how can you expect to put other individuals over? And that's that's what I try to get through to people. And yes, it is self-serving over the years to win those matches. It absolutely is. Because by winning the matches, are you burying other people, supposedly? Depending on your definition, I suppose you could fit some people under there. But the top wrestlers have got to win relatively consistently, or they're not going to be top wrestlers. And that's just a fact. I mean, they can't put every up-and-comer who is an indie darling over just to give them a push, because then there's no push to give at some point. You know, the gas is exhausted. So I've never really been a huge fan of those types of arguments, but these are two guys 
who are now at the extreme, for Triple H, the extreme back end of the career, and for Cena, certainly the back end of the career, and are pretty consistently putting the talent over, and they can do it on a somewhat regular basis now because over the years they've built up the cachet with the crowd to say, hey, I'm a winner. Hey, I'm a champion. And you know, for as often as Cena has dropped matches in the last two to three years, it's been relatively often, go back and look, people still believe that beating John Cena is a big deal. And they probably will continue to do that because of what John Cena's done over his career. I also got a chance to watch the Cruiserweight match with Cedric Alexander defending against Kalisto. I'll be quick about that one. It seemed really crisp. Um, there was one point where I thought Kalisto was going to go for Salida Del Sol, but then hit a kind of a spinning DDT that I've seen him hit before, and Alexander took it beautifully. It looked like it spiked him right on the head, but I, I know it didn't, but that's kind of the reaction the move's supposed to generate, and that's what generated with me. Uh, really, really crisp work from both guys. Kind of like the Triple H Cena match, except instead of older heavyweight veterans, you had one kind of middle of his career and then another younger cruiserweight star. But they worked, again, the same sort of effective, crisp match. And then at the end, Alexander did reverse Salida Del Sol into the lumbar check to get the pin after initially attempting a lumbar check and having that reversed. So they worked a good match. It was probably refreshing for them to be in front of a crowd that seemed actually interested in what they were doing to an extent. When Kalisto came out, he got a a decent little reaction there uh, from the Saudi Arabian crowd. So again, I'm, I'm happy for both those guys in terms of the fact that they were on the main show, got to go after Triple H and Cena opened up. So a lot of eyeballs were on the show at that point and put on a quick match. I can't remember what the time was. I don't think it was any more than seven or eight minutes, but a match that displayed, at least in quick order, what these two guys can do and what the Cruiserweights on 205 Live can do. And I've got the WWE Network right now. I'm as guilty as anybody of not going through and watching that hour after SmackDown. I really should do it. You had got, you have guys over there, like for instance, um, Tony Nese, who was in the Grace Royal Rumble who is just a specimen, as his character will tell you. Um, Drew Gulak is great. Jack Gallagher. Mustafa Ali. Lince Dorado. Grand Metallic. I mean, these guys are very talented. And if you want to see some fantastic cruiserweight wrestling, this is probably the deepest cruiserweight roster, certainly since 90s WCW. And probably even deeper than that, just with the talent that WWE has managed to amass there to provide them with a one-hour show every week. So I would encourage people to watch it, you know, do as I say, not as I do type situation because I'm guilty of not really putting in the time to watch that hour. But take a look at 205 Live and Cedric Alexander and Kalisto give you a pretty good reason to do so at the Grace Royal Rumble. Let's talk about the WWE Championship match, AJ Styles versus Shinsuke Nakamura. Not sure what else there is to say about that except for the fact that this feud must continue a double count-out finish, which I understand if they want to continue the feud because they kind of can't have AJ win again, but they don't want him to lose the belt. I suppose you could have done a DQ finish. But you've got Shinsuke. In the storyline, essentially, for those that haven't been watching, is Shinsuke is just kind of agitating AJ, and AJ is getting really riled up by Shinsuke to the point where AJ kind of can't control his emotions, for lack of a better term, and has done things you know, inside and outside the ring with, to Shinsuke that 
your face AJ Styles wouldn't normally do. So that's what they're pushing there. It's sort of a slow burn heel turn, which you kind of have to slow burn because you just turned Shinsuke heel. So unless you're going to make it an AJ Styles, Shinsuke, I mean, who knows? Maybe they'll make a New Japan stable. That'll be AJ, Shinsuke, and the Good Brothers. I don't know. But it was interesting at the end of SmackDown on Tuesday to see Shinsuke Nakamura hit a Kinsasha, or what was formerly known as the Bomai, on Carl Anderson, and then have AJ Styles laying in the ring, too. I was like, what is this? Have I been thrown back two or three years here? Is this 2015 all over again, or what's going on? But who knows? I, I think they are going to turn Styles' heel again here. I would be surprised if he wasn't a heel by SummerSlam. That would be my guess. Good match. Probably on par, at least to the point of the finish with what they put on at WrestleMania. So, again, I think everybody's expecting that big breakout great match, at least on the level of Wrestle Kingdom 10, from Styles and Nakamura. And, I mean, this feud must continue, so they're going to get another shot to do it here somewhat soon. I don't know if it's going to be a backlash, but we should be able to see another big match between these two on the card again very, very soon. Backlash, I think, is this Sunday, so <laughs> it'd be pretty amazing if they did again that quickly, but we'll see. The main event, I'll go over also very briefly as I'm running out of time to finish this recording here, but the main point to me in this match was who didn't plan for this finish with the cage. So Reigns hits Lesnar with the spear. They go through. Cage falls on the ground. Who doesn't plan for the idea that Roman then gets his feet on the ground first. I mean, didn't they... I, I don't know if you, that's something you practice necessarily, but you've got to be thinking about it in your head. Okay, so they both go down, the cage hits the floor, they both land on the cage. Oh, wait a minute. Our general rules for a cage match is that both feet hit first, and that's the first person who's out of the cage and is declared the winner. I, I don't know how you don't plan for that or think ahead about that, because clearly they didn't. And you had all of the announcers scrambling, and Graves did the best job with the NFL deal, where he said, "Look, it's like the NFL. Um, you know, either your feet hit first, or you know, some other integral part of your body hits first, and then that's how you know whether or not the person's in bounds. You know, in the NFL, you can have not just your two feet hit, but you could have like your butt, your back, your arm, your knee, you know, any of these other aspects of your person hit." in bounds and then it counts as being in bounds so that's what graves i was trying to spin it as i think he did a pretty good job of it cole was sort of not helping necessarily in him saying well i think there's real controversy here you know we're not sure whose feet hit first you know just go along with graves michael because now you've got two differing opinions on the broadcast as to what transpired they're probably going to have to come out and explain it on raw or at least talk about it in some capacity and I guess I wouldn't be totally shocked if they didn't address it, but it's almost to the point because of Cole's announcing on the play-by-play -play that you sort of have to mention it in, in part or, you know, come out with an official referee's decision here. So we'll see what they do. Um, the match itself was kind of paint-by-numbered stuff. Um, I thought it was a little bit better on the whole than what they were doing at WrestleMania. I think the WrestleMania match, like I stated in my WrestleMania review, was just complete crap. So this was better than complete crap, but it wasn't a whole lot better just because I don't think these two mix very well. And this hoss fight idea between the two of them is something nobody wants to see. It gets aggravating and people get aggravated. 
I, I just wish they would have put the belt on Roman. I don't understand not putting the belt on Roman. I think it delays everything. I think it sets everything back. And like I said previously, if you had the belt on Roman Reigns, the sooner you could do that, the sooner you can get Braun Strowman into the, into the title picture, as I stated when I talked about Strowman's Rumble win. So let's get the belt onto Reigns, off of Lesnar. Let's, let's get this show on the road and stop messing around with this. And the sooner that transpires, the I think the happier everybody's going to be. So with that, that's the review. Um, I am actually going to Texas this week for business. I may bring my dictaphone with me there, so maybe I'll have a little bit more to talk about. Um, I'm going to be there Monday and Tuesday for both Raw and SmackDown. I won't record on the plane because that would drive everybody crazy. Uh, but maybe when I do get back into town on Wednesday, heading back from the airport, I will put something together uh, for all of you to hear. So thanks to all my listeners. I will be back soon. Thank you.